Let me read from Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let me just pause here and say that that one sentence... Uh, may be one of the most staggering sentences that the Bible offers. Right up there with Genesis 1, that in the beginning God created uh, everything from nothing. He spoke the universe into existence. Um, If there's a top ten list of verses that um, our world sees as hurdles to faith, Uh, It may just be this verse that we just read. And it's easy to lose sight of it because we sing songs about it, familiar Christmas songs. You see this, um, you know, all over the place, especially this time of year. Um, But when we consider this passage, what the Bible is telling us is that what's often referred to as the Immaculate Conception, where Mary, this likely 13 to 14 year old, Jewish girl uh, from the town of Nazareth that when she had gone through the betrothal period, which by the way, an 18 to 20 year old uh, Jewish young man, uh, that was his typical age of marrying and, and it was to a 12 or 13 year old girl at this time. And they would come and have like a wedding ceremony, uh, which was their engagement And during that one year, it was about a year between the betrothal and the actual wedding ceremony, they made the same pledges that we would make in a wedding. Yesterday I did a wedding uh, here for Manal and for uh, Tamaus, uh, the Sudanese couple, and uh, it was a, a very lively group of people, right? It was a very lively event. If you see glitter remnants, um, it's because it, there was a, a big party here yesterday. Uh, I'm not a fan of glitter. Uh, I despise it, to be honest. Uh, but uh, but for the sake of a wedding ceremony, I will gladly endure uh, glitter all over the building, just not on my clothes. Uh, but that period, we said vows, and they made promises to each other, and they, they told each other that they would... Um, commit to this marriage relationship in the same way that would have taken place at Mary and Joseph's betrothal. Uh, That event for them, uh, it was not the consummation of their relationship. They didn't live together. They didn't come together. But they pledged to be with each other, making the same vows that we would make in our wedding ceremony. We just wrap it all up in one big uh, event. But they had this one-year betrothal period. And so it was during that period when she was um, committed to Joseph, but before they had come together, that you remember the story from Luke, the Holy Spirit, uh, the angel of the Lord came to her and told her what would take place. He said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and that which will be conceived in you will be said is from God himself. And so I just reiterate that because this is one of those sentences that we could just easily sort of hear and listen to or look at at this time of year, and not really consider that this is maybe one of the top hurdles to faith, certainly for the world, but maybe even to some of you in the room who might be struggling in your faith. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from his sins." Of course, that name Jesus is the transliteration that we get. It would have been Yeshua. Uh, it would have been his name, or uh, how we might Englishize it is Joshua, uh, meaning the Lord saves. But this name uh, of Jesus was given to him in, in our language that we understand uh, with this promise to Joseph in this dream that he will save his people from their sins. This promised Messiah came to fulfill this role of salvation from sins, which was altogether different than what many in Israel at that time had expected for the Messiah to do. They thought that he would come as a strong political leader, or as a strong military leader that would throw off the yoke of Roman rule and uh, establish Israel as a strong nation. And so it's no wonder that during this intertestamental time between the prophet Malachi and John the Baptist, that 400-year period, there were something like 300 Christ figures that rose up, started a movement to politically overthrow Greece and then Rome and then others, uh, that all those movements dissipated. And so this is uh, a distinction between Jesus, that when He has come, this angel told Joseph not to fear. Take Mary as your wife. That's what con- conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call His name Yeshua, for He will save His people from their sins. Not from Rome, not from Greece, not from a political standpoint, but He will save people at the very heart of that which uh, separates us from God. That is a sin. It's really the issue that we all need saving from. And you'll remember, you've heard me say this many times, that, that oftentimes when Jesus would come up to someone and, and they would need healing, there would be something wrong with them physically. Maybe they were blind or maybe they were deaf or mute or possessed by a demon or something like that. And Jesus would often look at the person, particularly to the paralyzed man who his friends lowered him down the door, and he would say to the person, your sins are forgiven. And it created a uh, tension between Jesus and these religious officials because they said, why does this man speak this way? Why does he say that he can forgive sins? Um, and, and certainly the other people said, well, we brought him to you because this person needs physical healing, not because he needs forgiveness of sins. And many times Jesus would, would go to the very heart of a person's issue And not just treat a surface issue, but the deepest need of their heart. And so when the angel tells this to Joseph, that he will save his people from their sins, this gets to the heart of every single human who has ever lived. That is, that we're separated by God from our sin, by, because of our sins. The passage goes on, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Um, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You might say, well, his name is Yeshua, not Emmanuel, so why will they call his name Emmanuel according to Isaiah? And so Isaiah provides for us the meaning. It's not necessarily a name or a title as much as a fulfillment or a description of who Jesus really is, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to listen to it. I pray that you would open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, that we may hear uh, what you have to say to us. Use your text, use this word that has been preserved and handed down. Uh, Use it in a way that strengthens us and encourages us and uh, convicts us and challenges us. And use this message for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I I don't know about your background, but but growing up as a a sort of quasi-Catholic um, kid in um, Oklahoma City. I had grandparents that were deeply, deeply Catholic, and, and so we spent a lot of time at their Catholic church in Oklahoma City. We lived in Norman, about 45 minutes uh, north of there, and so at some point in our, um, in our childhood, we were not church-going people. We were not religious people. We were not um, at all Christian, necessarily, uh, but my mother wanted to reconnect with her Catholic roots, and so at some point, maybe I was seven or eight or so, uh, we began driving uh, back to Oklahoma City, this 45-minute drive, back to see her family, back to um, go to these uh, Christmas masses. And and I felt uh, absolutely foolish in all these Christmas. I didn't know when to stand. I didn't know when to sit. I didn't know when to kneel. I splashed the holy water when I walked in to uh, the, the foyer there. I, I did not know know how to behave as a kid. I didn't know when to say peace be with you and also with you. I didn't know how to cross myself. I would do it backwards or with the wrong. I just messed everything up as a kid. And, and it took me a long time before I could kind of come to to, to some uh, level of comfortability with that. Uh, maybe it was a period of four or five years that we attended these masses uh, pretty much on Christmas and Easter only. And as a child who had never been exposed to the Bible or, or to really Christianity or to religion, I had a father who was uh, significantly uh, opposed to all that and still is really. Um, during that time, I really only knew that Jesus was born and that he died, and that he rose again on Easter. And and as I think back of that, I don't necessarily hate that today. Um, there were a lot of confusing things about Catholicism, reasons that I'm not Catholic today, which I'm more than happy to have a side conversation with any of you. But looking back on that, understanding just these sort of two bookends of Jesus' life on earth, it was simple. And for a person such as I was, it was foundational in my spiritual formation. It developed me in a way that was unique. If you only know of the Christmas story of Jesus and and the resurrection story of Jesus at Easter, that's plenty for you to start with. At times like this in our calendar year, uh, I'm often reminded of a phone conversation that I had with a college uh, roommate named Marty. He pastors a big church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And maybe seven or eight years ago, we started to have this conversation about the pressures of preaching and being a pastor and the difficulties of of, of what it means to come up with uh, Christmas messages and Easter messages. And, and I can remember listening to him talk about the pressure, especially in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where um, it seems like there's a 
2,000-member church on every corner, and you might drive into an area in, in his particular area, and there might be four or five, two, three, four, five 5,000-member churches in these enormous campuses and big buildings with... Um, I walked into one of these churches, this is a little sidetrack, I walked into one of these churches one time and, and I was uh, seeking uh, partnerships to plant uh, this congregation, Ridgeline, and, and when I walked in, one of the pastors showed me this um, uh, half a million dollar ambient projector system that they had set up in the back of their 2,000 seat auditorium. And I said, what do you mean? It just it sends the lyrics to the TV? And he laughed, you know, and he said, no, it just... Um, it it depicts a 180-degree uh, sky on the walls with rolling clouds, almost imperceptible. And, and I just, I, to this day, I can't wrap my mind around how the worship of Jesus requires ambient clouds projected onto the wall imperceptibly. I mean, you can't see them is what basically he's saying. They're so imperceptible, but... but Lo, this is what is required for ministry in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I thank God that we don't have to do those kinds of things. But, but there is a, a, an unusual pressure that I feel to some degree, but that especially Marty and other guys feel, to prepare sermons for days like today. There's a temptation to find some angle on Jesus and His birth and his, at Easter, His death and resurrection. And I, I don't understand that. Why is there some feeling of pressure for contemporary pastors to innovate and to present some of these basic foundational truths of the faith? Why do we feel that we need to improve on that? I'm reminded of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my speech were not in plausible words of wisdom, but just a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that that resonates with me on a day like today, because if what we just read in Matthew... What we just read in Matthew is enough. It's incredible enough to, to focus on that sentence that, that this virgin girl Mary could have this immaculate conception. It's incredible enough that God became a man. That He took on flesh and that He was born of a virgin. When you stop to think about it, is that not staggering? If you can put yourself in the place of Mary to be a teenage girl and to be in a situation where you're trying to convince the world that an angel told you what would take place and then what uh, wakes up and maybe has some morning sickness and then has to tell Joseph and, and she's experiencing the truth, the reality of what this angel communicated to her through this event. And not only that, but Joseph believes her and it's sort of those two against the world. This is a staggering bit of information that the Creator of all things would condescend, would humble Himself, and put Himself in the world that He created that was broken and fallen. And if we're not in awe of what God did in and through the events surrounding 
the coming and the sending of his son Jesus. There's, there's no real emotional angle or creative way that I can present this that, that will improve your situation. At some point, listen, at some point you're just going to be faced with the challenge to believe this. To really embrace foundational biblical truths that are presented through the Christian faith and message. You'll either believe it or you'll reject it. I'm not trying to keep you in some religious culture. I'm not trying to uh, indoctrinate you in some cultural system. I'm not trying to entangle you in some sort of religious practice. I'm trying to communicate to you as clearly as I know how the, the difficult but the truths that Jesus presents that you must believe or reject. The Bible describes that each of us will have to stand before God one day and we have to give an account of how we responded to these truths. Either you will have responded in saving faith or you will or you have responded in, in some sort of rejection of this. I, in those Catholic years, those early years, uh, neglected any sort of responsibility for what to do with the message of Christmas and the message of Easter. It would have been 10 or so years later before my circumstances and my life events brought me to a place where I was morally bankrupt and in every other way uh, cried out to God and said, if you're real, if you're there, I need your help. Uh, You've got to let me know because I can't live like this anymore. And it was at that point that I was ready to understand and receive the truths of the gospel. So this temptation for a pastor to be innovative and creative to find this new slant or different angle. Years ago, I abandoned all that and decided, especially at Christmas and Easter, just to present this, the most basic of biblical truths, so that you may be confronted with what it is that you must believe. And that is this. That God sent Jesus into the world, Jesus being a member of the eternal Trinity, not created, not the firstborn of creation in the sense that God was existent and then he created Jesus, but, but the Bible presents this truth that God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God eternally existing in three persons. And so that God sent his Son, Jesus, into the world to become, to take on flesh, to set aside His deity, not to lose any of it, but to set it aside and to take on a new nature in addition to His deity, and that He became a person. And that this person, Jesus, lived a life completely free of sin. And this is accomplished because His birth for Mary, as she was a virgin, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by her fiancé Joseph, In that way, this provided Jesus with a sinless human nature more like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. So Jesus' miraculous conception allowed him to be free from the inherited sin like the rest of us. You see, those of us, uh, the rest of the world, right, we're we're born in the normal way, right? Um, A man and a woman come together. Parents, relax. I'm not going to give any kind of a talk that will make your children uncomfortable. Maybe it makes them uncomfortable. I don't know. But but 
Um, this way, all of us um, were born into the world, and because of the fall of Adam and Eve, every child born from Adam and Eve inherited the same fallen nature that Adam and Eve received when they uh, uh, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. So every child, every one of us are born. Matter of fact, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one who is righteous. There's not one who does anything right. There's not one of us who are born sinless. I've said this before, but this is why you never have to teach a kid to say no to his parents, right? Breaking one of Exodus 20, those ten commandments, those ten words that Moses was given, that we shall not, uh, that we should honor our father and mother, that we should be obedient, that we shouldn't covet, that we shouldn't lie, that we shouldn't steal. You listen, we don't have to teach children to do this. They naturally know how to do this. Their default switch is set to sin nature. And it, it works its way out in thousands and thousands, millions of individual acts of sin, attitudes of sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, all these ways. We're all born into that. But Jesus, as a result of his miraculous conception, not only was he born sinless, he also faced the temptation to sin to the fullest degree, and he always resisted it. Jesus never gave in to temptation every single time, which is something I really struggle with this time of year, right? I was at this wedding yesterday, and, and there's this incredible wedding cake, and then there, there are these incredible Sudanese desserts, and, and I'm maybe a little shame, maybe not, but to say that I grabbed two dessert plates, kind of acting like, oh, I'm not going to get one for Julie, you know, and, and yet I'm loading my plate with things that I want to try and sample. And there was this long buffet line of this incredible Sudanese food. And, and, and this is a temptation that I did not uh, resist yesterday too well. But Jesus resisted all temptation to sin. He was absolutely and completely sinless. And because of his sinless life, he was a pure sacrifice that God accepted as a substitute for sinful people. Because of his sinless life, Jesus became a pure sacrifice that God accepted. He was acceptable to God. See, the Israelites were uh, completely familiar with the sacrificial system given by Moses and recorded in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that, that there was to be this Passover lamb, this spotless, blameless lamb that would be sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over, give life to the inhabitants rather than giving death. And Jesus, in every way, fulfilled this role of the sinless, spotless, blameless lamb. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw him, he said, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because he was sinless, God accepted his sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And so Jesus came as this unblemished Lamb of God who takes the death that we all deserve. And we call this, um, we call it the great exchange. In, in some theological circles, you might hear that, this great exchange idea that, that Jesus trades our sin for his sinlessness. He trades his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He takes our punishment and he gives his reward to those who would believe in him. It's truly an incredible exchange of grace. Something that we don't earn or deserve. 
There's nothing we can do to merit that. There's no holy to-do list. God's not taking attendance today and, and checking a box that says, oh, you're here today. So that's one you know, merit that builds toward your salvation. It's not a, a, a works-type religion that if you're, the better you are, the more you earn God's favor. No, it's, it's all undeserved. God pours out His grace on the most undeserving sinners like me. This is the great exchange. That Jesus Christ came to seek and to save sinners. This Christmas story that we read every year, it, it doesn't begin with the census that we read in Luke. It doesn't begin with Zechariah and Elizabeth and uh, the birth of John the Baptist. It doesn't even begin with this visit from the angel to Mary or the dream from Joseph or the trip to Bethlehem. This Christmas story that we read about goes all the way back to eternity past with these uh, decrees of God when He determined in the act of creation that He would send His Son to die. That they would create man in His image, they would rebel, and that He would redeem them by sending His only Son. So I want to take the final moments of our time together today to focus on what does it mean to have God with us? If that's the title that was given to Jesus, if that's the description that was given to Him, what does Isaiah mean when he says that God is with us? We're going to flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. On page 330, if you're using the, uh, the Bible <clears throat> under the seat there. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah prophesied in a really difficult time about 700 years before Jesus uh, during the Assyrian uh, captivity when Tiglath-Pileser, a name I know you're all very familiar with, uh, probably on your list of baby names in the future, but but he had come through and um, Israel had divided into two nations, the nation of Judah and then the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the process of that, because of their... Um, failure to keep the covenant established with David and with Moses and Abraham, they were carried off into exile. And Isaiah was prophesying during that time. And even in the midst of really dark and difficult times, he kept weaving into his prophetic message these glimpses of hope. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. See, it was in the midst of their disobedience and their rebellion and their rejection that God promised, and yet my grace shall appear in the form of me coming to be with you, God being with you, God dwelling among you. That's Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, flip over a page or two if you can to Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Uh, Elijah read this to us earlier. Skipping down through most of Isaiah's uh, prophecy in that verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, we'll just look at verses 6 through 7, where he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. This is Isaiah's prophecy in the midst of really difficult times and dark times. Uh, um, a, a new promise is introduced, and that is of this, of this child to be born. And of this child, it's said that his kingdom or his government <clears throat> shall be firmly placed on his shoulder, and then he bears these four titles that God himself would bear. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This doesn't describe an earthly kingdom. What Jesus establishes is what he described as the kingdom of God. And you'll remember in his Sermon on the Mount and in other places, he described this as a kingdom that is begins like a mustard seed. And he took a mustard seed and he said, this is the smallest of all the seeds in the garden. And yet once it's planted and once it grows, it becomes the largest. So that birds come and plant and, and, and nest in it. This is what the kingdom of God is like. That, that when Jesus began this kingdom that it began with these few disciples and that over the course of three years it turned into 500 committed followers at or around the time of Jesus' ascension. That within the first five or so years after Jesus' ascension, that at the the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, that hundreds and hundreds, they says they baptized 3,000 people in that first day at the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And that throughout the book of Acts, as we've traced, by the end of the book of Acts, uh, Paul is saying there's, there's no more room for me here to, to proclaim the gospel. In all of Europe, the Middle East, in all this area, I've saturated it with the message of Jesus. This mustard seed had grown. And that's what's described in Isaiah 9, the coming of the kingdom of God, to the degree that there are millions, maybe even billions of people today who are celebrating Christmas in churches like this. What God accomplished through Jesus was bigger and better than one nation. Bigger and better than being a strong politician or becoming a military superpower. Those nations tend to come and go in the history of the world. But what God accomplished in Jesus was Emmanuel, that His presence would be actually physically with us in the person of Jesus at the initiation of the kingdom of God. And now that Jesus is building His church and that the church is marked by people who have the presence of God with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. John 14, Jesus said, I will send to you a counselor, a helper, a paraclete. This um, person of the Holy Spirit will come and take up residence within you. A person who is filled with the Spirit has God's presence, Emmanuel, with them. And this is because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus, His miraculous birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. It's because of that that we can say that God is with us. That in a room like this, there are dozens of people, likely, that that are carrying around with them in their daily jobs, in their home life, in their family life, The very presence of God, 
in a way that gives them an unnatural peace when they might be facing a trial. It gives them an unnatural hope in the face of some sort of devastating loss or difficulty. It gives them some sort of joy, even though everything in their circumstances says there's no way you should have joy. It gives a person like Corey Ten Boom, who was able to extend grace and forgiveness to a Nazi captor from a concentration camp and to offer forgiveness and grace because she had received grace. Those are the, the everyday miracles that we experience when we experience Emmanuel, when we experience God with us. And it is that we carry, as Paul said, these treasure, this treasure of God's presence in these jars of clay. It's like putting something incredibly valuable in something incredibly fragile, common, and weak, right? No one would look at your life or my life maybe and say, oh my gosh, you radiate the presence of God. Something about the way you look or talk or act. Without God's presence within us, we are just weak and fallen, unimpressive in our flesh. And yet it pleases God to dwell within us in the person of His Holy Spirit so that any good that comes from us must be said of us that God is with them. Because of Jesus' miraculous birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, we have this Emmanuel. There's a couple of ways that you can respond to a message like this. You can kind of file it away as a Christmas message, although it's not really... A Christmas message. Um, you can file it away as information. But hopefully you'll come to a point where I had to come to at some point in my life when, when the Christmas and Easter story, they weren't just enough to be stories, but they were something that I actually had to do something with. Either believe it, submit my life to Christ and believe, or reject it. Reject it and walk away. That's the choice that's before you, not just in Christmas, not just today, but, but any day. The opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved, to experience this new life that He offers, the forgiveness of sins and grace, or the opportunity to reject Him. But I will just warn you that the Bible tells of a day when we will all stand before God. And all of us will stand before God and we'll have to give an account for what we did with this challenge before you today. What you do with Jesus will make all the difference for eternity, not just for this life only. So my prayer for you is that you might believe, that you might consider, that you might begin this opportunity exploring who Jesus is and taking this step of faith. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together today to hear your word. Uh, you tell us in Isaiah 55 that, that as the, the, sun, the, the rain and the snow go out and they accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, to water the earth, uh, that so also your word goes out. And you send it out to accomplish a purpose. It's my prayer that you would accomplish that purpose today, that those who uh, you are speaking to today that they might respond to you in faith, that they might yield their lives to you, Jesus, that they might be counted among those of the redeemed of all ages. You are building your church, Lord Jesus, and it's, it's not built through innovation or creativity or entertaining sermons and messages. 
It's built upon the clear proclamation of your word and the gospel and people's ability to respond to it as your spirit enables them. So it's our prayer that you would do your work here among us today. In Jesus' name, amen.